Hello and welcome to episode four of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week we're revisiting a 2016 event with Naomi Klein, interviewed here by Anya Lawler. Good evening everyone and welcome to the RDS Concert Hall and to this event which raises the curtain on the International Literature Festival in Dublin for 2016. I'm Martin Colthorpe, I'm the Programme Director for the festival and I can't think of a better speaker with whom to open than Naomi Klein, one of the world's leading public intellectuals whose writing and activism changes the way we think about capitalism and the contemporary world. Naomi's going to be properly introduced by our chair this evening, Anya Lawler. Anya joined RTE in 1984 and has since gone on to become one of the country's most prominent and celebrated broadcast journalists. She was a presenter on Morning Island for 17 years and has worked on the Pat Kenny Show, Today at Five, RTE 2FM News, and television programmes including The Nature of Things, Tuesday File, and as narrator for the highly acclaimed series, States of Fear. She was awarded Best News Broadcaster for the Year at the PPI Radio Awards in 2012 and was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2014. She's currently a presenter on RTE's flagship lunchtime radio news programme, News at One, and also a presenter of the Week in Politics on RTE One. This evening, Naomi Klein will give a talk for around 30 minutes. She'll then be in conversation with Anya before taking questions from the audience. And now, it's a real honour and a privilege to ask you to give a very warm welcome to Naomi Klein and firstly our chair, Anya Lawler. Hello everyone. Uh, First of all, I want to say thank you to Martin uh, and to the festival for asking me along here tonight. I'm a total... Just, I'm here for the ride. I'm here, like you all are, uh, to hear Naomi Klein. As I was saying to her outside, uh, my job is kind of asking people questions. Um, you don't often get the privilege of asking clever people questions who actually... <laughs> who actually, not often is what I said, who actually have very sensible and interesting answers. So uh, that's basically why I'm here tonight. Um, President Higgins uh, said today at the Dochus Summit, that there's an urgent need for new theory and new thinking grounded in a reconciliation between economy, ethics and ecology. Well, it's almost as if he was designing a call and that call is answered in person tonight uh, in Naomi Klein and in particular in her latest work, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. Now, Naomi will be telling you more about that in a minute. Uh, And then, as Martin said, we'll be in conversation for about half an hour. Then there'll be time for questions from the floor and we'll wrap up about half past nine in order to get the signings done. Uh, But I want first to tell you just a little bit about this very, very remarkable woman. Well, she is, of course, an award-winning journalist. Uh, She's a syndicated columnist. She's already penned two previous groundbreaking uh, bestsellers in No Logo and its critique of global corporate capitalism and the shock doctrine, which tackled the rise of disaster capitalism, unfortunately still thriving. 
Her column for The Nation is syndicated internationally by the New York Times. She's a board member of 350.org, a global grassroots movement to solve the climate crisis and a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at The Nation Institute. Now, Naomi's current bestseller, uh, This Changes Everything, and if you haven't bought it yet, you should have. The books are out there. But anyway, it's been translated into 25 languages. It won the Hillary West Writers Trust Nonfiction Prize for 2014 and was listed by the New York Times as a notable book of the year. And the documentary based on the book premiered in the Toronto Film Festival last September and is now available worldwide. She's just marvellous and she is so interesting. You give Naomi Klein a very warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anya, for that lovely introduction. Thank you, Martin, for having me here and everybody uh, at the International Literature Festival here in Dublin. Uh, It's been a long time. It's been almost a decade since I've been here, and it's great to be back. Uh, I also want to thank my my wonderful publisher, uh, uh, Penguin, for supporting my books for so long. Um, And I was wondering if Danny Healy Ray made it. Um, I saw... (laughs) I was... No, I don't know. I, I saw all kinds of people offering him tickets on Twitter. Um, so if you are out there, welcome. Uh, we're going to be talking about how God Above is really pissed that we keep blaming her for all of our screw-ups. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so we're so I'm going to be talking about the crisis of climate change, and a couple of you may be thinking, well, that's silly because our politicians fixed that in December um, in Paris at the big summit to save the world. Remember that? That's them cheering wildly for themselves. Look at how happy they are. They're so pleased. Look, look at how sincere. Um, that's that's you know I'm Canadian, right? So. Uh, that's our hunky new prime minister. It's up there, it's up there for the ladies. Um, he was there. Canada is back, he said. Um, and even our media, usually so cynical, just couldn't help getting in on the euphoria. Check out some of these headlines, right? It marks the end of the fossil fuel age. I read that in a few media outlets. And I'm sure you've all noticed the gas stations closing in droves. Um, actually, Exxon, just, uh, 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 just a couple months ago, uh, after the Paris Agreement, put out a report where it reassured its investors that it believes that the share of the energy market taken up by oil and gas will be 80% between now and 2040, which is strange. And I know there's some climate scientists in the audience. Um, If we are going to keep the promises we made in Paris, we pretty much need to be off fossil fuels by mid-century, not having oil and gas continuing to take up 80% of the energy market. So what is going on? Is what happened in Paris this huge political breakthrough that we all heard about, or is it an ecological disaster? And the short answer to that question is both. This actually was a political breakthrough in that it is the best that our politicians have ever managed to come up with before. Uh, It really is hard to get this many countries to agree on anything. 
Um, and there are some good things in the deal, but it is still an ecological disaster. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit because I think that it highlights uh, the, the broad theme of, of this changes everything and, and what I'm going to be talking about here tonight, which is uh, the clash between our economic and political system and uh, the climate system. Uh, so what is really significant in the deal, uh, most significant in the deal, is that it pledges to keep warming, to keep warming uh, below two degrees Celsius while, quote, pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So this is warming above uh, temperature levels before we started burning fossil fuels on an industrial scale. And I was in Paris and, you know, covering, covering the summit and inside and outside, and I can tell you that it was a huge fight to get that clause in there that sort of sort of commits to 1.5, although, as you could see, there's wiggle room in there, pursuing efforts, right? But it, it does matter that it made it in there, and it was being pushed by the most uh, climate-vulnerable countries in the world, countries like the Philippines that are already being battered uh, by, by deadly typhoons and are in the midst of a terrible drought right now, by African countries that are so vulnerable to drought, as we're seeing once again, at the moment, um, and particularly from low-lying island states who understand that if we do allow temperatures to increase by two degrees Celsius, it means the end of their countries, the end of their ancient cultures. Uh, their slogan of the low-lying island nations in Paris was 1.5 to stay alive. Um, so they won in that they got that language in there, and that's part of why people were cheering uh, at the end of the summit. So that's the good news. Um, and if we, you know, if we took that temperature target seriously, then it actually would mean the end of the fossil fuel age in that we would need to be taking kind of wartime measures to get off fossil fuels right now. And that's even true if we are going to keep a two degree to a two degree target. It means, for instance, that uh, the, the oil in my country, the Alberta tar sands, this extra dirty form of oil, we would need to be keeping between 80 and 90 percent of that oil in the ground. There's absolutely no room for expansion of so-called extreme energy within the carbon budget that's compatible with these targets. Um, so here's the bad news. This, at this, the same governments that set these noble goals and cheered for themselves because of it simultaneously and very openly declared themselves unwilling to do the things necessary to meet those goals. And to understand that, you have to sort of understand the weird ways in which the UN works, and I'm not going to get into too much detail, but... Um, they decided not to have what they called a top-down approach. Uh, so a top-down approach would have said, okay, if we're serious about this target, this is our global carbon budget, and this is your share Ireland, and this is your share China, and this is your share United States, and we, you know, and, and we would have allocated that. But instead, what we did is we said, okay, everybody go home. Um, come up with your best climate plans, your best emission reduction pledges, and then we'll add it all up, and fingers crossed it will add up to what we want to do, which is keep temperatures below 2 degrees or 1.5. The problem is, if you add up all of the national plans, all the plans that all the governments brought to Paris, it doesn't add up to a trajectory that leads us to 1.5 or 2 degrees. It adds up to a trajectory that leads us to double that, 
three to four degrees, according to Kevin Anderson, uh, the deputy director of the Tyndall Center on Climate Change Research. And to put that in perspective, Anderson describes four degrees warming, and I quote him in the introduction to my book, as incompatible with any reasonable characterization of an organized, equitable, and civilized global community. So he's, you know, pretty direct about this. So what our politicians have said is, we know what we need to do, and we are willing to do roughly half that. Um, we had a pretty good definition of safety and a concrete plan for disaster in the Paris deal. And what's really weird about it is that it acknowledges this in the preamble and notes this with serious concern, the gap between the actual plans and the target. But it has a solution, and the solution is these same governments are going to meet every five years, take stock, and hope that things have changed for the better. Like, who knows, right? Um, oh, dear. God above, right? Um, it's actually even more worrying than that because the targets that all of our governments brought to Paris are non-binding, right? Uh, this is not like a trade deal, uh, like signing TTIP, where if you break the rules, there are serious repercussions like sanctions and so on. No fines, no, there's no repercussions. And that's why all the Republican uh, contenders and now you know, just one man standing, or promising to break the promises that Obama brought to Paris. Right? And so this is why David Cameron could go back and push fracking after, uh, after that celebration in Paris. It's why your previous government uh, went home and continued with plans to double the size of the national herd over the next few years, even though agriculture is already 30% of your greenhouse gas emissions. It's why tomorrow you finally have a new government, I understand, maybe, um, and it finally laid out its program for the country, and it says not one word about climate change. So in other words, our governments are not taking this seriously. Um, and what that means is that we're not actually on a road to three to four degrees warming. We're on a road that is called business as usual. That means just keep on keeping on, don't do much of anything, and that actually leads us to six degrees of warming, according to the International Energy Agency. And to put that in perspective, because I know you, know you talk about climate change as just this you know, number soup, and it's where all acronyms go to die, right? It's so boring, but this is very real. We have warmed the planet by one degree Celsius so far. And this is what that road we're on looks like in my country right now in Canada, and some of you may have seen this. This is the highway that um, leads from Fort McMurray, which is the boom town at the center of the Alberta tar sands, and, and Edmonton, um, which is where a lot of the workers live and go on their days off. It's, um, it's a hellish place right now because this, the entire uh, city of Fort McMurray has been evacuated, uh, and these wildfires are spreading uh, with no end in sight. It's really an inferno, and I, you know, I, th I think it's even made the news here. Um, and of course, this is, you know, this is very powerfully symbolic because of what those workers are doing uh, in Fort McMurray. 
Um, so this is what one degree of warming looks like. Um, this is what, and this is a really disturbing image, but I think it's important uh, to remind ourselves, and I say this, you know, because you live in a you know, relatively cold country, I live in a relatively cold country, and I think we can sometimes be a little sanguine about climate change. We like it when things are warmer, right? Um, in Pakistan last summer, uh, and in India, there was a historic um, drought and heat wave, and thousands of people died. Uh, these are the morgues in Karachi that ran out of space last summer, and they are now headed um, for another deadly heat wave um, that's coming a month earlier than usual. So right now in East Africa, 36 million people face hunger due to drought, according to the UN. So this is why not everyone was cheering at the end of the climate summit. It's why on the last day there was this demonstration um, and people took to the streets despite the fact that there had been a ban on protests because France was still under a state of emergency after the terrorist attacks. People defied that ban, they went into the streets and they unfurled these huge red lines to symbolize the fact that the deal crosses multiple red lines. It crosses scientific red lines, equity red lines, legal red lines, because it isn't legally enforceable. Um, but I was in the streets that day, and what was interesting you know, to me as somebody who's been to a lot of demonstrations is that the mood was not one of despair or defeatism as you might expect in a moment like this. It was really one of resolve and clarity um, that our politicians um, had had pretty accurately said what needs to happen, made it really clear they're not going to do it because they don't believe that political realities right now allow them to do it, and that it's the role of social movements to change those political realities. My friend Bill McKibben, who founded 350.org, said, I think, I put it very well that day in Paris, he said, they said 1.5 and we're going to damn well hold them to it. Um, and so there's a lot of, of organizing that's going on to hold our politicians to that very, very important pledge that they made. Um, and I'm going to be talking more about that. But before I do, I, want, I just want to uh, dig in a little bit into why we find ourselves in this moment of such extraordinary um, disconnect, right, where we have politicians saying things like, you know, climate change is a weapon of mass destruction, to quote John Kerry, and yet they don't act like it. We don't get the response. So why is it that we are so stuck when it comes to climate change? Why is there this gap between rhetoric and action? Um, and you know, we, we, there are a lot of theories that you hear uh, around this question. And one, one of the things we hear a lot is that it's just human nature, right? Um, that we are selfish and greedy and we are inherently short-sighted and climate change is a far-off crisis and just, we're just not built to deal with something like this. Um, but the truth is um, that humans are complex and you know, we are capable of responding to crisis uh, in some pretty amazing ways. We know that um, from our collective history. The argument I make in this changes everything is that you know, while certainly human nature plays a role, I believe that the best explanation for the failure, the collective failure to respond to climate change is an epic case of historic bad timing that this particular crisis landed on our laps as a policy issue. So not when scientists started figuring it out, but when this became an issue for our governments, for our politicians, when they first started having meetings to talk about lowering emissions, that that hit us at the worst possible moment in human evolution, and that moment was the late 1980s. Um, so this is... Um, 
this is James Hansen, perhaps the, you know, the most revered climate scientist in the world. He was then working at NASA. This is 1988, and he is testifying before the U.S. Congress, and he says that he can now say with a high degree of certainty that humans are causing the planet to warm. And this was really front page news. And this is when we lost all plausible deniability. And there's lots of young people in the audience. Um, to give you a sense of just how much climate change was not an issue just for sort of policy wonks, but what everyone was talking about at that time. When the editors of Time magazine that year uh, had to choose their man of the year, but it was still only men in 1988, um, they chose this. They made this very bold decision that the man of the year in 1988 was our, our planet, um, our embattled planet, our endangered Earth. Um, and all of the essays inside were about rising uh, to this existential challenge. Um, but nothing happened. It didn't happen, right? Since that year, 1988, was the year that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed. It was the year that the first intergovernmental um, meeting about climate change was held. But since then, emissions have gone up by more than 60%. So what got in the way? What interrupted the signal and all of that goodwill and good intention? So what else was going on in the late 1980s that might have explained it? Okay, so one thing that happened in 1988 is that Canada and the U.S. signed the first free trade agreement of its kind, the big first corporate free trade deal that was eventually expanded uh, into the North American free trade agreement, NAFTA, which is the prototype for all these trade deals that we're seeing now, like TTIP um, and the TPP. Uh, this was about to happen the next year, 1989, the collapse of the Berlin Wall and then the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was good and exciting in and of itself, but was interpreted by a particular group of intellectuals in the United States, most notably Francis Fukuyama, as meaning the end of history, as they said at the time, which meant that the particular model of free market capitalism that had been honed under Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher during the 1980s was now going to be globalized, exported to every corner of the globe, right? And this is, you know, the story of how that happened on the backs of crises and shocks is what my previous book is about, uh, The Shock Doctrine. So I'm not going to get into all of that, and I'm not going to give everybody a big lesson on what neoliberalism is and what globalization was, because we've all been living it and we, we know this. But what's important to remember is that the moment when, we are, when our governments got together to do something about climate change was the high point of this ideological project, right? I mean, we are in a time when so many of these ideas are discredited, right? You're going to be hearing from, you know, Yanis Varoufakis, who's going to talk about what happened in Greece and you know, the crisis of, of, of austerity politics, right? But this was a moment when it was all promise, right? Where we, we were going to privatize everything, deregulate everything, get out of the way of corporations, um, and uh, lock it all in under corporate-friendly free trade deals, and it was going to benefit everyone in the trickle-down. That was the promise. Uh, it hadn't yet been discredited. Very familiar stuff. You've certainly been getting a heavy dose of it here in Ireland. But this ideological project of neoliberalism is actually very rarely connected with climate change, which I find strange as somebody who spent a lot of time studying neoliberalism because the conflicts between what we need to do in the face of the climate crisis and what that neoliberal project demands are really, really obvious when you think about it, right? So just to very quickly go through this, right, if we're going to take climate change seriously, 
it requires massive investments in the public sphere because we're talking about changing how we generate energy, really changing the building blocks of our industrial economies, moving from fossil fuels to renewables, changing the way we move ourselves around uh, so that we move from a car-based culture to a public transit culture, um, investing in rails and so on, and really reimagining all of that. It is not just about flipping the switch, it's also about consuming less, especially um, when uh, we've waited so long that now it, it, you know, we, we, there is what Michael Mann, a great climate scientist, calls the procrastination penalty, right? Like if you wait and wait and make the problem a lot worse, then these gradual changes are no longer available to you. So it does get into consumption. We have to consume less. So it's hitting us, though, at this time when public spending is being clawed back, when consumption becomes our culture, our religion, our pastime, right? Um, and, and the explosion of, of, of the lifestyle brands that I wrote about in No Logo, um, this is all happening at the worst possible moment because this is when we need to rethink the role of consumption in our lives. We also need to be regulating multinational corporations. I mean, we know that fossil fuel companies have five times more carbon in their proven reserves than is compatible with a two-degree temperature target. That's why uh, the fossil fuel divestment movement has grown as quickly as it has, including here in Ireland. Um, it's because people have done the math, but somebody has to tell these companies you can't dig up all that carbon and this crisis is hitting us at a time when the opposite is happening. We're deregulating the corporate sphere. Our, our politicians are becoming very, very poor at standing up to multinational corporations. Now, this shift in uh, our energy system, our transportation system, uh, our agriculture system, it's expensive. We need to get money somewhere, right? And usually that comes from taxes. It hits us at a time when not only is regulation a dirty word, taxes is a dirty word. Um, we also, if we're going to take climate change seriously and deal with the demand side, need to be able to relocalize our economies. And we have these trade deals that are pushing us in exactly the opposite direction. So we have these clashes at every stage. Not only are we madly slashing the public sphere that we need to be investing in, but we're selling it off. We're privatizing our rail system, our energy systems, our road systems, our water systems. And what we've seen around the world is that private energy uh, companies that took control over the power grids in this period, particularly in the 1990s, have been the major barrier to rapid climate action. And if you look at a country like Germany that has, in fact, you know, introduced a feed-in tariff and is now getting 30% of their electricity from renewables, um, one of the sort of least known parts of that transition story is that in hundreds of cities and towns, Germans have taken back their energy grids from the companies that privatized them in the 1990s. They've had referendums. They've simply made the decisions. They have those mechanisms to do that precisely because the private companies whose only goal was to maximize profits were blocking them at every turn and really hated decentralized solar where their customers become where their customers become their competitors, right? Um, so they fought that, and in the United States, we've seen this again and again, the big coal-fired utilities fighting renewables uh, at every turn. And this, of course, raises the incredible role um, of money in politics, particularly in North America, but you guys aren't immune. And this is you know, why I called my book This Changes Everything, because once we start looking at this, it is not just about um, this technocratic problem that is just about getting the right policy in place. We're suddenly talking about the whole system. Um, 
So we have these conflicts, and every once in a while, uh, um, a politician will uh, stand up to a fossil fuel company because they're under growing pressure from the climate uh, justice movement. Obama finally, after four years, said no to the Keystone XL pipeline. This was this incredibly long campaign because it is so unprecedented for a politician to say no to a project that represents economic growth for the country. Finally, he does it. It's this big legacy project. We declare victory in the movement. And lo and behold, TransCanada, which is a Canadian company that wanted to build this pipeline carrying tar sands oil to the United States, announces that they're going to sue uh, the U.S. government for $15 billion in lost profits. The, Germany is facing several challenges, um, some of the largest of these investor state challenges, for their very good energy transition. They're facing these challenges from Vattenfall, a Swedish company, that says that Germany's energy transition is interfering with their right to make profits from nuclear and coal. So this is why um, we... Uh, it is madness to be uh, signing new deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the TTP, TTIP, which uh, we just got a big leak uh, of TTIP, of TTIP. Uh, we call it TTIP. I think you guys call it TTIP. Um, and to nobody's surprise, we got further corroboration that these mega deals would be used to expand extreme energy extraction while placing a range of new restrictions on the ability of Europe and the U.S., to introduce strong climate regulations or buy local policies to support renewables. And this is something that um, I was really struck by when I was doing this research for the book, that these trade deals more and more are being used to sue national governments that are actually doing the right thing on climate change. And maybe we can talk more about that. So we've got a world upside down. We are paying the polluters uh, when, in fact, we should be getting the polluters to pay for the transition off of fossil fuels. The good news is that people are waking up. It is not 1988. It is not all promise. We have a track record to measure the promise of trickle-down against, and we now have a global inequality crisis. We have the data, thanks to people like Thomas Piketty, showing us that the promise is broken, and that is why... Um, something you know, as extraordinary as an avowed democratic socialist, um, Bernie Sanders has you know, made a credible run to lead the Democratic Party in the United States. Um, it's why a pope who sounds a lot like him uh, is also greeted like a rock star around the world. Um, who would have thought that a few years ago? And this is all because that promise, the promise at the heart of the neoliberal uh, project has been broken. I think you're feeling some of this shift in Ireland. I realize it's perhaps not a great day for it, um, but we've certainly taken inspiration around the world from the powerful and growing rejections of the politics of austerity, particularly in defending essential services like water, refusing to pay these exorbitant fees, insisting that water is a human right and cannot be commodified, and you've won a recent suspension there. I know the fight is not over, but this is sending, I think, a very clear and important message. Um, and you know, one of the most exciting developments has been the rise of what in the book I call Blockadia, which is this global network of, uh, the, uh, of activists who are taking on the fossil fuel companies directly, who are keeping the carbon in the ground. And this is what Bill meant when he said they said 1.5, and we're going to damn well hold them to it. If you read the Paris Accord, it actually doesn't even say the words fossil fuel. It doesn't even say oil or coal um, or natural gas. 
Um, and if our politicians aren't able to say it, well, they're probably not going to be able to stand up to these interests. And so around the world, people are doing that. Um, this is what happened to Shell. They were on their way up to the Arctic to drill for oil in Alaska last year, just about this time, actually. And they had this bright idea that they would do some maintenance on their Arctic drilling rig in Seattle, which is the greenest city in the United States, or one of them. And they were surrounded by the kayaktivist, which is a new word. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, uh, these are movements that are led by indigenous people, particularly indigenous women. This is a wonderful indigenous activist uh, in the Vancouver area named Audrey Siegel, standing up to that shell rig when it went up the Canadian side of the coast. Um, a few months later, Shell announced it was pulling out of the Arctic for the foreseeable future. Um, this is just one example. And as I mentioned, the Keystone campaign, this is global. Uh, the reason why we're taking on these infrastructure projects, and in particular the pipelines and the export terminals, is that these are multi-billion euro projects that are built to last, right? You don't spend this much money building a pipeline or an export terminal if you don't intend for it to stay in operation for around 40 years, well past the point that we need to be off fossil fuels, which is why um, this slogan has become the thin green line, no new infrastructure projects. We need to divest from the infrastructure of the past and invest in the infrastructure of the future. And you know that Blockadia is not a new phenomenon. Here, for over a decade, he waged an electrifying fight uh, to send Shell to sea. That has been an inspiration um, for many of us. Um, and this, you know, this, you know, even when these struggles don't win, um, they set a precedent and they train people. And this is the ground on which the anti-fracking movement is standing now. And it's remarkable how the anti-fracking movement in Ireland has turned things around in just a few years. Uh, the fight is bringing communities together here as well as in Northern Ireland, as you know, making the connections uh, with the commodification of water and the pollution of water. You won in Leitrim, one of the most threatened areas, along with a number of other uh, county councils that have voted uh, to ban fracking. And this is part of a global movement, right? And it has won some incredible victories, like New York State banning fracking, under uh, a governor who we never thought it would happen. And it's because of this grassroots pressure. We also have precedents like whole countries, France deciding not to hand out any new fossil fuel leases on public lands. This is a platform on Bernie Sanders' campaign. No new fossil fuel leases on public lands. And there is a, a campaign here led by Trocare making a similar demand for no new exploration. When you're in a hole, stop digging. One of the reasons why we're starting to see more and more victories um, is because the movement is growing, but it's also because, um, for the moment, capitalism is helping. The price of oil and gas is down. Um, and because we are, been, we are in the age of extreme energy, right, where the easy and cheap stuff is, is mostly gone, and the new projects, the new investment, uh, is in dirtier, higher risk, and more expens expensive extreme energy, right? So these companies are finding themselves in a pincer um, of the pressure from social movements and the fact that these projects are less profitable than they were a year ago. 
Um, the other factor that's putting real pressure is the fossil fuel divestment movement. You've got campaigns here at Trinity College um, and uh, Queen's University in Belfast. Trocare has just launched a campaign calling on the Irish government to divest. Um, and this is, you know, a really interesting campaign because your tax dollars are being invested in fossil fuels through the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. So I encourage all of you to look into this campaign. I try to, you know... Um, let people know some of some of the things they might not know are going on locally. Some of you do know this already. So these are all great examples of saying no, saying no to what we don't want. And we have to say no to what we don't want because we are on this very tight and unyielding science-based deadline. But saying no is not enough because this no has real costs. It does cost jobs. Um, and it it, it, it costs hope in communities where these fossil fuel projects are the only ones coming in with a plan for economic development, um, for a plan to pay for much-needed services. And particularly in the age of austerity, we see how, how all of these issues intersect, right? Southern Europe, in the midst of economic austerity, has been pushed very hard to open up uh, the Aegean and Mediterranean for more, more oil and gas exploration. Um, so what does the yes look like? And the yes needs to be more than just um, a future that is not environmental apocalypse. It actually needs to be better than the present. If you're going to build a powerful movement that's going to motivate people, it's going to be because it connects the dots between very, very urgent issues around economic justice, the need for jobs, the need for better services. Because the reason why, let's face it, the environmental movement loses when it loses is because people are so focused on those so-called bread and butter issues. And often environmentalists have tried to win this by going, well, you know, there's no jobs on a dead planet, and you know, first we'll save the world, and then we'll worry about racism and inequality. But that's the way you fail and piss people off, okay? The new model <laughs> is finding integrated solutions, designing policies and fighting for policies that radically bring down emissions, create huge numbers of well-paying, unionized jobs, and bring real, tangible justice to the communities that need and deserve it most. So I want to talk a little bit about a project that I've been involved in in Canada um, where we try to... Um, we tried to do this. We tried to get serious about the yes. Um, we, uh, we had a meeting a year ago in Toronto um, with 60 movement leaders for two days, closed the doors, and did something that we absolutely never do. We gave ourselves space to dream about the future we want. And this was a very broad coalition that included everyone from Greenpeace to the union that represents the workers in the Alberta tar sands, uh, faith groups, women's groups, migrant rights groups, racial justice groups. And it was hard. I mean, it was really, really hard. And we kept telling ourselves that, you know, if you aren't arguing, your coalition isn't big enough. And we realized that we'd come together before, but only ever to say no. We'd come together to say, okay, we don't like this right-wing government, or we don't want this terrible trade deal. But we had never come together before to map out the yes. And so we started to do that. And we wrote this document together called The Leap. Um, and um, it was, it, it was I, I, I sort of wrote the first draft of this, but six, you know, I got track changes from about um, 30 people. It was my idea of hell um, as a writer. Um, but the document itself, the draft, came from listening to the themes that came out of this gathering. 
and the themes were really clear. It was um, an identification of the common thread that everybody was facing was the logic of, of extraction without limits, not just from the earth, but also from our social safety net, just pushing beyond capacity as if there's no breaking point, cutting and cutting and cutting, and also extracting labor from, each other, from, from people's bodies and pushing as if there is no breaking point, as if you know, there, there's no point at which um, precariousness no longer is possible, right? Um, moving from that culture of endless taking without consequence, to a culture of caretaking, of caring for the planet and caring for one another. And so that was sort of the big idea that knitted together all of these issues. And we were really adamant that we didn't just want a list. We wanted another story, um, a story that rejected the logic of extractivism and moved us to another story inspired by indigenous knowledge, um, going back to the founding crime of our country, which is the theft of land from indigenous people. Um, one of the reasons why we chose the name, the leap, um, by the way, is because we realized that 2016 is a leap year. Um, and and it, we, we, it struck us that this was a really nice metaphor because every four years, um, those of us who follow the Western calendar we add this extra day to the month of February every four years because our human-created system of measuring time is flawed. It does not actually match up with the Earth's revolution around the sun. And if we don't do this sort of awkward thing of adding an extra day, then everything goes out of alignment. So it's this rare expression of humility that it is easier to change our human-created rules than it is to change the laws of nature. And so if our economists could understand that, then we'd actually be in good shape. So that's why we called it The Leap. And um, we've been amazed by the way this has taken off. It's been endorsed by uh, 200 organizations in Canada, by, by um, you know, I, I know Canadian celebrities sounds like an oxymoron, but we have 10, and they all signed. They all signed. Um, we were very excited when Leonard Cohen signed. And, um, and it's inspired similar manifestos to be written from Nunavut to Australia to Norway to the South Bronx. Um, and I just want to give you a few examples of some of what we came up with here. And just if you're interested uh, in starting your own LEAP group, you can go to uh, leapmanifesto.org and read this document. It's very short. It's 1,400 words. Um, the centerpiece of it is the demand for energy democracy, that as we switch from fossil fuels to renewables, we don't just want to be buying it from Shell and Exxon. We want communities to own and control their own renewable energy projects um, so that the revenue stays in the communities and can pay for services and fight austerity. But we wanted to do more than that. We call for um, energy justice, energy reparations. So we say that indigenous people and others who have been on the front lines of industrial activity and have have, have had to bear that toxic burden with cancer clusters, um, with higher rates of asthma, should be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy projects. Um, I'm running out of time here. Some stuff on agriculture, there's stuff on trade. Um, one of the things we really wanted to do was build a bridge with a migrant rights movement because that's so important in this moment and recognize that we have shared responsibility in the reason people are moving because it's often because of wars that our governments have backed, often fought over fossil fuels, the main driver of climate change. And now people are also moving because of climate change and because of bad trade deals that our governments have, have backed, which is why we call for full rights for all workers regardless of immigration status. 
as well as opening our borders to many more uh, mig migrants and refugees. One of the most important parts of the document is, you know, you would imagine that it would call for big investments in renewables and, and, um, and public transit and rail and all, all that and, and these things associated with so-called green jobs. And we do call for that. And we argue that we can create 10 times more jobs when we invest in these sectors than when we invest in oil and gas. But the, the thing that I'm most excited about is the way in which the document redefines what a green job is. Um, you know, Taking care of children is low-carbon work. Teaching children is low-carbon work. Healthcare is low-carbon work. The arts are low-carbon work. Um, so, what, so what we call for is an investment in the low-carbon sectors that are already out there, that are dominated by women in our countries, immigrant women. They're some of the most devalued work in our economy. So let's totally redefine what a climate worker is, and let's invest in that low-carbon economy that's already there. Um, <clears throat> Now, obviously, this sounds expensive, um, which is why the other thing we do is say that austerity, the logic of austerity, is at war with life on Earth. The money is there. We just have to go after it. We worked with a team of economists um, who came up with a document to go with this called Canada Can Afford to Leap that... that, that uh, outlines exactly where we get the money on a polluter ba pays basis. And a key part of this is cuts to military spending as well as a progressive carbon tax and so on. I'm rushing here as you can see. So it is a pretty radical document. Our corporate media completely freaked out and said we want to destroy the economy, called us communists, and said we were inspired by Chairman Mao's great leap forward and so on. Um, <laughs> you know, the usual. But what's really been amazing is that despite this just relentless uh, campaign against it in the corporate press, um, you know, none of the celebrities have backed away from it, no, none of the groups have taken their names off of it, um, and, and in fact, the, the appetite for this transformative vision seems to be growing. And on Leap Day, on February 29th, there were events around the world um, with people coming together to, to write their own LEAP manifestos. And what we hear all the time is that what is appealing is the expression of urgency and possibility and embedding justice in every aspect of the transition. Because, you know, we hear this all the time from politicians. They, you know, they introduce some half-baked climate measure and they say, oh, we know it's not enough, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, when you, if you get a new government and they do eventually remember climate change, they will tell you this. We know it's not enough, but it's a step in the right direction. And that's what we heard in Paris, of course. But here's the thing. When you are faced with a chasm between where you are and where you need to be in just a few short years, Baby steps are not enough. If we take them, we will end up like this guy. And people know it, and they are hungry for this kind of transformational change. They understand that we've gone so far off course, and time is so short, that now we have to go for it on all fronts. Now is not the time for small steps. Now is the time for boldness. Now is the time to leap. Thank you. The funny thing is, um, the skill that you bring 
and the, the impression you're left with after reading your books or, or listening to you talk. Um, you manage to talk optimistically about things that make most of us want to dive underneath the covers because your head would start hurting mm. uh, with all of that. And to combine that with, um, it seems to me, an amazing persistence and clarity of vision. So what changed everything for you? How did that vision, that capacity to imagine a way forward, to describe strategies, mm -hmm. where did that come from? Um, well, I mean, I would say I, I, I think I feel more optimistic now than I did when I even finished the book, precisely because of being part of this really concrete, real-world process, you know, rolling up our sleeves and trying to do this, right? It's one thing to write about it, but it's another thing to actually see for yourself that when we do do this work of, of, of laying out our, our, our plan and testing it and working with economists and seeing if we can cost it out, that we have great ideas and they excite people, you know? Um, so I feel very optimistic about that. And, you know, the connections are obvious once, once you make them, you know, and it's just, it's kind of crazy that we have these amazing anti-austerity movements and, you know, movements taking on these trade deals, but they almost never mention climate change, but the connection is there, or even the anti-war movement. We, we very rarely make the sort of obvious connection that many of these wars are fought over the substance that is causing climate change, right? So we stay in our silos, and we are in this, and what makes me optimistic is that um, even since I wrote the book, people are mobilized, right? I mean, when I finished the book, the Black Lives Matter movement didn't exist. Um, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, I, when I launched the book in New York, I did an event with Bernie, um, and it was, and, and he was sort of floating this kind of crazy idea he was going to run for president. I was like, yeah, right, you know? Um, so things change quickly. You know, the Pope, right? I mean, who would like, I would, I would, I'm a secular Jewish feminist, and I was invited to the Vatican to talk about capitalism. I mean, it's weird. Like, so, so, so that is the counterbalance to the, oh my God, climate news that I also am immersed in, you know, and James Hansen, you know, publishing a study going, Okay, so it's a lot worse than we thought, um, and two degrees is reckless. Um, it means you know, potentially the end of every coastal city this century, right? It's a, you know, it's, it, that's not certain, and it's a, it's a controversial paper, but this is our most respected climate scientist in the world, and this is a co paper co-authored by 18 climate scientists that's peer-reviewed. This came out last month, by the way. So, you know, if you only look at that stuff, you're going to get really scared. The other, the other thing that motivates me, so that it is just, frankly, it is that fear, right? Like my, my this changes everything moment was Katrina. I was in New Orleans um, writing the shock doctrine and reporting from that city when it was still underwater and seeing this absolutely terrifying intersection of heavy weather of the kind we're gonna see more of, right? Warmer oceans lead to stronger storms hitting a weak and neglected public sphere, the levees that should have held breaking, totally non-functional government, can't find New Orleans for five days. Layered on top of that is institutionalized racism. The people who are abandoned are vilified, monsterized on Fox News, you know, literally called animals um, and looters and that, you know, so it's like, okay, 
that's the shock doctrine, because then they privatize the schools. And I mean, people who know the shock doctrine, like I start with New Orleans and I end with New Orleans because it's the most scary example. So what motivates me is not just the happy stuff, right? It's, it's, it's that I know that these shocks are going to be used by powerful forces to create a, a really scary world, because I've seen it. And so if progressives do not get in there with a plan that brings us together rather than apart, um, that builds a stronger public sphere rather than just devouring it in these moments of shock, and you guys know all about this because you experienced the shock doctrine after the collapse of the, uh, of the banks and the housing market, um, you know, we cannot afford to not have a plan. We cannot afford to stay in our silos. So I'm motivated by hope, yeah? Optimism, yeah? Terror also. Okay, let me, let me be real right. here. And th there are a couple of key phrases that you use, and this gets back to, you know, the optimism and not just saying no, but also yeah. organizing to, to start creating the kinds of policies we need to see and want to see. Uh, the three that, that struck me, and well, two that lead on to blockade are common lens. I think that's actually really interesting. Connecting the dots mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then blockade. So talk to me about those three phases. Nearly in a way for, for people here who, you know, may have been disappointed by our government going and, you know, making very fine speeches, but then also committing to um, less by way of action or certainly continuing with certain other actions that would make yeah, it hard yeah. to meet the environment. So the common lens, connecting the dots, and blockadia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, um, I feel like one of the most, one of those powerful you know, pieces of connective tissue or the common lens is, is, is this rejection of sacrifice zones. Um, this, that, that, you know, if you look at Black Lives Matter, right, what is the, what, what are people saying? You know, they're saying, you cannot treat us like we're disposable anymore, right? Um, you cannot rank human life. Um, and, and, you know, we also have these very powerful movements fighting for uh, a living wage for fast food workers, right? This whole sector of the economy that has been treated literally like garbage, right? And they're saying, no, um, we've got families to support. We demand these rights. And then then you have these places, right, that have traditionally been the sacrifice zones. And this is the, you know, this is the, the, the Faustian bargain of the fossil fuel age. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no clean, fair way to power your economy with fossil fuels. It has always been based on the idea that there will be some other people who will eat the risk, whether they're the, it's the lungs of the coal miners um, or whether it's the communities who have their mountains blown off in Appalachia. And there are always theories that rationalize it, right? In the U.S., it's, you know, the hillbillies of Appalachia, right? Well, if they're hillbillies, who cares about the hills? You can blast them off, right? Um, in, in, in Canada, this, the racism against indigenous people is what rationalized the theft and poisoning of their land. So I see that as a really powerful connective, um, you know, connective lens, um, the rejection of the sacrifice zone mentality, the sacrificial people, sacrificial places. And, and it, you know, something that I found really resonant in the Pope's encyclical was you know, that one phrase that is used again and again is... is um, the throwaway culture, that we have this throwaway culture um, and, and we treat people as if they're throwaway refugees and, and we treat the planet like it's throwaway and we also treat our things as if they're throwaway, right? And, and, and so I think we need, to, we need to 
you know, it's not perfect. And like I said, I, I, I'm a secular Jewish feminist and disagree with the Pope on all kinds of things. So I mean, I'm in Ireland. I need to say that, you know. Um, but it, but it's what I found exciting about it was the, was the way it drew those connections. And I think more and more of us are feeling that. The, the problem is just that so many of us are in such a tough spot that. Um, you know, the urgency of dealing... There's so many urgent crises that people are dealing with. So it's until the climate movement finds a way to say, this is not about saying your fight for basic you know, human needs, for jobs, for food, for safety. It's not about saying that, that, that you have to put that on hold and care about climate change. It's about how caring about climate change is also about caring for you um, and meeting those needs. And, um, and, and I, I think that's starting to happen. It's not fast enough, but it's starting. And, and, and indeed, you, you know, you're saying despite the disappointments of Paris, uh, you've been so impressed by the way that activism has kept going since yeah. then to try to bridge the chasm between the intentions and, and the, the specific goals. But one of the difficulties uh, that many people, I would imagine, in, in this room might have encountered from time to time is, you know, you can have a protest, you can stop something, and, yeah. you know, great, everyone goes home and says, okay, we've done that. It, it's, and it's also an issue that has cropped up here, I think, in terms of keeping the momentum going mm -hmm. and build, you know, and not just going from one protest and then five years later another big protest yeah. in, in a different place. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, what we've found, this is, this is what's been really exciting about The Leap, is that it's, it's a project, right? And it's a plan for the whole economy that, um, you, you know, because we put the, the caregiving professions at the center of it, we're working with the largest trade union um, that represents public sector workers that are tr traditionally has not been so much a part of the climate fight. And, um, and you know, young people are, are, you know, are carrying it forward and, and they see it as, you know, not just hope on the climate front, but hope on the jobs front. Um, yeah, I mean, right now there's a, a great action going on globally called Break Free, which, which you know, is addressing this thing of, okay, well, when you fight fracking here, it feels very local, um, but actually people are fighting these fossil fuel projects around the world, and we are keeping a huge amount of carbon in the, in the ground, and we need to celebrate that and take strength from each other. So, you know, for two weeks in May, and it just started a couple days ago, there was a big action in a Welsh open pit coal mine, a huge, huge actions in the Philippines. Um, there's, it's, it's very um, deliberately going after these huge pools of carbon that need to stay in the ground. Big actions in Australia, obviously. Um, so it's, it's, it's to get at that feeling of, okay, this is isolated. It isn't isolated. And we have the information tools to show ourselves that this is global and it is coordinated. But it's still just the no. And it's the yes, I think, that's going to build, to make this bigger than just an environmental movement. Um, and I try to say this in a way that doesn't offend environmentalists, but this is too important to leave to the environmental movement. And I say that with all love to the environmental movement. It's too big. We're talking about, you know, our common home. We're talking about everything, right? So, of course, this has to build the broadest coalition possible. And, you know, I mentioned Bernie. Um, it, Bernie will probably lose, right? I mean, welcome to the real world, right? But the tragedy is that if Bernie loses, um, he, he will not lose because there is, he will not lose that nomination because there isn't a progressive appetite in the United States. He will have lost it because he failed to build bridges to communities of color. 
right, that are mobilized around Black Lives Matter and migration. Um, they didn't know him. They didn't trust him. It felt too worked out before they were reached out to, which is a problem on the left that we do again and again, where we figure everything out and we're going, why is everyone white? We should go find some brown people. And they're like, screw you, you keep doing this, you know? Um, so we have politicians in this country who don't even feel white. Honest to goodness, we have those too. Um, you mentioned Bernie. And now it looks as though uh, the Donald is going to be the Republican Oy. nominee. Uh, Bernie is going to continue to the convention. Um, and Hillary, obviously, is going to keep on fighting. Um, of Hillary or Trump, who scares you most? Um, Trump, you know, I, do, I, do, I, know, I did, did feel like the past couple of days, just because we've been very focused on these, in, these infernal, you know, situa this situation in Fort McMurray, just finding, like, reading the Trump news and then seeing, like, the world on fire, at the, just sort of kind of all merged into one for me. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, look, I think that um, the mistake that was made with Obama was thinking that, okay, just because you have, you know, the, not the worst possible outcome, um, people can relax, right? There was so much relief at being rid of Bush that people demobilized in his first term. So I think that if Hillary, um, you know, Hillary will probably be the nominee, and um, and and hopefully she will win against Trump, right? Um, but it is going to be so incredibly important for there to be a counterpower uh, that is putting pressure on her at every single stage, because we saw during the campaign that Bernie's presence moved her significantly to the left. Um, but you know, she is the poster child of the neoliberal project, right? Um, the Clintons are the ones who, um, you know, in addition to the policies that were introduced while Bill Clinton was in office, if you look at the Clinton Foundation, you know, it is all about this partnership model between multinational corporations and celebrities and governments, and it is an incredibly elite model of change. It's all sort of done at the top. You know, Bill talks to the drug companies and convinces them to lower their costs, and then we don't need to change, you know, the outrageous patent protections that allow them to sell, sell these drugs at such marked up prices and so on. So, I mean, we know, I think we know what we're getting with Hillary more than we knew what we were getting with Obama, so that's good. Um, and so, yeah, so in terms of what worries me, they both worry me a hell of a lot, I gotta tell you. Um, I'm a little, you know, but, but this is what we thought it was gonna be. We didn't think it was gonna be Trump. We thought Hillary was gonna be the nominee. Um, Bernie raised hopes for a while, and then we kind of let ourselves imagine, like, oh my God, imagine if there was a president who really got these issues. Um, that would be something that we hadn't let ourselves imagine. But if it ends up being Hillary, I think it's pretty common ground. And I think that having a U.S. version of what we've been doing with the leap in terms of a really broad-based coalition that brings all yeah. of these constituencies together will be really, really crucial. And, you know, here where you, you have this crazy situation where... Um, potentially you're going to have a new government tomorrow that, that forgot about climate change. That's a weird kind of opportunity, right? Because it's a vacuum and obviously there needs to be a plan and you need to give it to them, right? Don't wait for their plan. <laughs> and when, just because you mentioned Fort McMurray, I was just wondering the past couple of days looking at those pictures because yeah. you've been, you know, so certain, you know, change is inevitable. We have this window. It's up to us yeah. to make the right change. 
it must have felt terribly bitter to look at those pictures and know that in a way they prove you right that that's exactly what you've been saying in your campaigning on that issue um you know it's it's, it's i don't feel um you know any kind of i told you so and it's absolutely tragic and it's 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 this is a community that was already in terrible pain before this happened because a hundred thousand workers have lost their jobs since the price of oil collapsed um, so it was already a community in a lot of pain, and now these workers who are having trouble paying their bills suddenly are losing their homes. I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, my husband, Avi Lewis, is here who made the film This Changes Everything, directed that film. And, um, you know, some of you may have seen the film. Maybe some of you will come tomorrow night where we're screening it again. Um, the, the, the place where we spend the, the most time is Fort McMurray. Um, and, uh, you know, Avi spent a lot of time interviewing workers, uh, and we have friends there, um, you know, friends in Fort McMurray, friends down the road, you know, in indigenous communities who are opening their doors to people who've lost their homes. All we can hope is that this, you know, when, when we get out of this emergency, that it could be a moment. Um, the, 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 the weird thing is that one thing that happens during during disasters is people use it to tell you to shut up. Like there's this been this thing of like no one's allowed to talk about climate change, right? Um, because that's just mean or something. So I mean, we just need to kind of get through this period, and then we have obviously we have to learn mm -hmm. from this. I mean, moments of crisis should be catalysts for change. They are messages telling us something is wrong, right? Um, you know, there are sometimes there are just fluke accidents, but we know we're going to be dealing with more and more of these crises. So, um, uh, you know, the reason why we wrote the leap was because we are in a shock because of the price of oil going down. The reason Germany transitioned as quickly as they did is because the Fukushima disaster happened, and Germans said, "Whoa." Okay, they already had a strong anti-nuke movement, and they said we don't want this, and they use that to put pressure on their government. So it's really important how we respond in moments of shock, right? Um, for the yeah. because someone's going to respond, right? Um, and may as well be you. We we can see you know big dramatic things like that. You know disasters on, on our television screen, and the pictures are very dramatic. You know. TTIP, the transatlantic, you know, uh, yeah. partnership do. It, it, it's hard for many people to make the same connection, you know, with the potential uh, disasters there. But even here, we had farmers yesterday uh, protesting against uh, the Greenpeace leak documents on the TTIP deal. And what, one of the things, of course, that it showed was that we would lose the precautionary principle. Right. So, right. And that would be, you know, it's, it's, so why is that precautionary principle and that approach and it also ties in, of course, with this whole manifesto of, you know, the thin green line. Right. Well, you know, this is a moment where we need maximum policy flexibility uh, to, to, to respond to these sort of overlapping crises. And this is, you know, the, the concerns around food safety regulations are the same ones around, um, you know, around climate policy. Uh, my, where I live, Ontario, was successfully challenged um, at the World Trade Organization because we introduced a green energy program that tried to marry the need for good jobs with the need for bold climate action. So we 
came up with a plan to phase out coal in six years. It was the most ambitious plan um, of its kind in North America at the time. Um, but, the, but, but in order to get the the unions on side, um, this, was a, this was introduced at a time when workers in the auto industry were losing their jobs um, after the big three automakers uh, collapsed in 2008. Um, so I, I, our government very smartly, I believe, in, had a part of the plan that said that if you want to benefit from this plan, from our feed and tariff program, then you have to make 40 to 60 percent of your wind turbines and solar panels in our province, in Ontario. Um, it created 30,000 jobs very quickly, laid off auto workers, got jobs making solar panels. It was like your just transition good news story. And then we got challenged at the World Trade Organization because it was said to be protectionist, right? So, um, you know, it's not that you know, we need trade. It's not about being against trade. It's that these deals um, are, you know, they're designed for a very specific form of trade that is about this race to the bottom and maximizing profits for multinationals. And these cannot be the priorities for how we write our trade rules. And I think climate change makes that clearer than anything else. And that's why it's such a lost opportunity when we don't make the connection um, between uh, TTIP or, or, or the TPP and, and climate. Why should we kick oil when it's done? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, sorry, this mic is kind of fighting with it. Um, so, uh, so the reason why we should kick oil when the price is down is one reason is that it's a good time to introduce a carbon tax, right? I mean, when, when, when you've got a high price of oil, it's hard to ask people to pay more. They're already hurting. Um, when, the, when the price collapses, as, as, it, is, as it has, um, then, you, you know, you can introduce a good, well-designed carbon tax. It has to be progressive, and progressive means that the lower half of income earners get more back in credits than they're paying in increased taxes, but higher income earners do pay more, and we have that money to pay for the green transition. So that's one of the reasons why we should kick oil when the price is down. Um, and then the other reason is just that um, it is this really important opportunity to build these alliances with labor, right? Because it's hard, right? But when the price of oil was high, we were in a fossil fuel frenzy, right? And so the only good jobs that were being created for people, and they were the only well-paying uh, blue-collar jobs, were in the oil and gas sector, pretty much. Um, so we were saying, no, but you can create so many more jobs if you invest in renewables and public transit. But we were comparing actual jobs with notional jobs, right? And when it, you know anyone who's ever John tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work, right? The, the, the actual jobs win. So in a moment, actually, when when these companies are throwing their workers under the bus, and they are, as I said, 100,000 workers have lost their jobs, that's a moment when you can build alliances. And the, 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 the um, Trade uh, Federation in Canada, the Canadian Labor Congress, this is the Union of Unions, um, they're pushing for a one million climate jobs plan, which is fantastic. This is what we need our trade unions to do. So we need to build these alliances in a moment when the extractive industries are failing to deliver, right? Because for 10 years, they've been the ones saying, we're the job creators. They're not. They're the ones laying their workers off. So it's about never waste a good crisis. Look, I've seen enough crises be exploited by the bad guys that I'm ready for the good guys to win. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we're running out of time and I, do, I don't want to hog you completely if people have questions that they want. We have roving mics and all the rest, so does anyone have a question? So uh, the first hand I saw was this person here uh, in the black cardigan. Um, the, sorry, the gentleman walking down there with the microphone with the white hair, there's somebody, there's two people here, but the first one I saw was is the silver, lovely silver hair, sir. Um, <laughs> the silver haired gentleman there. And just to speed up time, I'm going to, and there you're waving your hand and you're right beside the lady with the red T-shirt there who's going to give you a microphone. So I'm <coughs> going to take your three questions, right. give Naomi a chance to answer those, and then we'll do that all over again. <laughs> so we're in good hands. One, two, and three over there. Okay, away you go. Um, I suppose I'll, be, I'll try to be brief. Um, I work in the agricultural sector, and I'm also a student uh, in this country. Um, in the uh, university that I go to, they have one of the biggest uh, centres of uh, ocean research, trying to convert tidal energy. Um, my question for you is in, in, in regards to... Um, I'll tell you, would you mind standing up? Because yes. it's actually hard to see from here. I'm sorry to embarrass you in front of everybody. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm just wondering how you view um, the relationship, I suppose, you're talking about multinationals and the hoarding of uh, energy in general. Um, one of the biggest uh, problems that we face in this country is the uh, governmental policy of zero grazing farming in agriculture. Uh, the incentive to uh, bring in incinerators instead of looking at um, the likes of uh, clean rubbish uh, re removal. Um, and also the idea of uh, basically attacking anyone uh, who tries to change this. So um, what's your quest what, what, what question are you, are, are, are you letting out here? My question for this is just in relation to how you, you view the uh, corporatization of renewable energy in and, and how we can move away from that in terms of renewable energy and the centres of excellence that are actually emerging in this country and throughout okay. the world. Because capitalism is not going to, you know, th there's a growth opportunity, renewables, and they're going to want yeah. to get in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, we're are we taking a few at a time, or was that the plan? Yeah, you, okay. The gentleman over there. Thank you. Uh, Charles Tyson from Atlanta. Uh, I just spent uh, at three residential churches in the afternoon, uh, the relentless sustainable development girls were pretty strategic. Yes, his speech was absolutely spot on. If you like to watch the president, I suggest you say Be rude, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is a backdoor season. And yeah. nobody, but nobody is fighting CETA, which is going to happen. And actually makes CETA. Um, okay. Which they will have it by then. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. Naomi will address that now in a second. Our final, yes, the person, sorry, I can't see you, but yeah, there you go. Hi. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, I was actually at Paris last year and I was interested to what you were saying about the approach taken 
um, in terms of people's voluntary climate action plans and how, it, how it's not working. We're going to get to three, four degrees. Um, but previous to that, we, it was tried for years to have a, a top-down measure, which also didn't work because people just walked out of the, the negotiations altogether. So what I'm interested to learn about is how do we balance the two, you know? How do we balance the, the bottom-up, bringing people together, creating, you know, ambitious climate action plans with that top-down kind of, you know, okay. possible mm-hmm. benevolent mm-hmm. dictatorship? Just how do, we, how do we balance that up? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks. It's a good question, actually. It's a great question. Yeah, um, it is true um, that that both top-down, if you want to call Kyoto top-down, it wasn't really all that um, top-down. And this bottom-up approach, they're both both weak, right? Um, And I think part of it is just, you know, if you compare the trade deals with the climate deals, it's really striking. I mean, if you... There are consequences for breaking a trade deal. There's no consequence for breaking Kyoto commitments. I mean, Canada signed Kyoto. Canada's emissions are 30% higher than what we promised, and we got embarrassing, so we quit, you know? Um, you know, if you did that, you know, to NAFTA, you would be dealing with trade sanctions, right? So the deal, I think the bigger problem is not the top-down, bottom-up. It's that they're toothless. They're absolutely toothless. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think we, we need to be looking at consequences. Um, and this is, you know, I mean, what's so interesting is, is that seems like so radical, right? But why is it more radical to have consequences for destabilizing the planet and taking actions that lead entire other countries countries to disappear beneath the waves, right? Um, You know, we accept that there are consequences for breaking trade deals. Um, So, you know, one of the really interesting things when I was doing the research for the book was realizing that these, you know, the, the, the whole international trade architecture was being written at the same time as we were negotiating the Kyoto Protocol. I mean, there's these are parallel international negotiations, and one was made very strong, the other was made very weak, and it explicitly says in the UN Climate Convention and in the text of the Kyoto Protocol that nothing in this agreement can be seen to be contravening the trade rules that were being negotiated elsewhere, right? So literally, it's in the text that trade trumps the climate. Um, So um, all I can say about how we deal with the moment we're in is that we need to beat our governments over their heads with what they promised in Paris, okay, which is to keep temperatures below 1.5 or 2 degrees. So we are going to hold them to that. We are going to haunt them with that, right? I mean, and we are, I mean, in Canada, our government went to Paris, lapped up all the love, you know. Um, we actually were, were the, were, were the um, highly industrialized country that stood with the island nations and said, yeah, they're right. We need 1.5 in the agreement. We got a lot of kudos for that. And then our government went home and started pushing for new tar sands pipelines. So we need to haunt them with this. We need to um, embarrass them with this. And we need to say this, this was a sacred pledge that was made. Um, and, they're, they're, and, and that means, you know, we, like we need to bring in the voices of the most climate-affected people um, so that this is not abstract. Um, so that's one way, um, you know, and, 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 and it's interesting because, you know, the, the two-degree temperature target is the base, you know, it's one of the key numbers in the, in, in the math of the divestment movement, right? Bill McKibben wrote this incredible article called Do the Math, where he looked at what the carbon budget is for a two-degree temperature target, the fact that, that, that fossil fuel companies have five times more than that, 
and said, okay, well, this doesn't add up. We, act, we need to divest, okay? But that was using a non-binding temperature target, right? I mean, two, two degrees was, was, was what was promised in Copenhagen, but it was non-binding. So you know, social movements can do a lot with even weak international agreements. But what we have to understand is that the agreements are not going to do it on their own. Um, so, it's, so this is why I said it, it does matter that 1.5 is in there, not because our governments have a plan to meet it, okay. but because we will use it. And just briefly on kind of capitalism yes. exploiting the potential yeah. of renewables. So I think that this is, this is why the energy democracy demand is, is, is so key, right? And this is something else that was very clear in Paris was, you, you know, you had all of these, um, you know, the, 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 there, was, there was this whole sort of corporate pavilion with the, um, you know, agriculture companies who were marketing drought-resistant seeds um, and, uh, and, and the nuclear companies who were saying, we're the climate solution. Um, and, uh, you know, there's absolutely... Uh, a way to respond to climate change that exacerbates inequality, strengthens corporate power, and that's why there needs to be a, um, you know, a, a, a very clear set of demands for climate justice, not just any old climate action, but climate justice and what that means. There is a global climate justice movement that is fighting against incinerators and is you know, defining what real energy justice means. Um, but we can't be complacent about this. You know, for so, so long, the demand was just action, right? Take action, and you can sort of decide what the action is. That's really dangerous. We can't afford to do that. Okay. I'm conscious it's half past okay. nine, and right. we've taken an awful lot of your time, and you've still got book signings. I'm going to take three more. Uh, there was a hand And here. I'm going to that be really just, brief. They, now, I'm going to ask you to be... Uh, I'm going to take you all rattling, rattling, rattling. You have one there, and I hope you have one there. I'm going to take you really fast. Short questions. We love you. Come on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Technological solutions could come along. Very briefly, where are we over the speak? Yes. Yeah. Microphone up closer. Okay. And do we have a final question? Is it there? Yes. Uh, well, it doesn't sound like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, come on. I was really interested, Naomi, in you making the link with uh, climate change and positivity with the anti-water charges movement and the anti-factor movement in Ireland. Surprised I didn't get a cheer from the audience. I know there's probably a lot of people here. Quick, quick, quick. But actually, actually, there were a lot of people who saw the anti-water charges movement as something that ran contrary to their ideas about conservation of water. Yeah. Actually, in fit, now, that's a really good point. It's but a, I am not going to ask Naomi to get involved in the whole Irish water tobacco at this stage. That's not fair. That's a brilliant. No, but it's a brilliant point, and Naomi will be signing books. You have no. I, I'm sorry, we have those two points. And um, you know, it's getting very late, so I'm going to ask Naomi to leave those, and then I have my last question for you. Go on. Okay. Um, 
the technology question, I mean, absolutely, the social media has has um, allowed us to do an end run around, um, uh, you know, media organizations that tend to belittle, um, particularly, uh, you know, activism where people are protecting their communities. So this is this is you know smeared as nimbyism, right? Um, and what what the, the fact that we can communicate directly with one another um, has allowed us to do is the, you know, the anti-fracking movement here in Ireland to connect with the anti-fracking movement in France and Germany um, and Algeria and New York um, and gain inspiration. I love the French slogan of the anti-fracking movement is ni ici ni ailleurs, not here or nor anywhere, right? This is not nimbyism. Um, it's a rejection of the idea that it's okay to sacrifice certain places and that we are in this amazing time coming back to technology, um, where we can power our economies. We do have to consume less, um, but we can get our power from 100% renewables. We've got research out of Stanford University um, from Mark Jacobson's team that shows how every country in the world can get to 100% um, renewables for all of our energy needs, including transportation, before mid-century, that, that with existing technologies, that we don't need nuclear to do it, that we can do it. So if scientists are saying that we have to do it and engineers are saying that we can do it, and we should. So I'm not, it's not about being against technology, um, but we need to be wary of this sort of the techno fix idea that we're going to just dim the sky, dim the sun, and, and fix it that way. Because I think that's a very powerful narrative in our culture that we're so smart, and yes, we caused this, but we're going to fix it at the very last minute. Um, the the question about um, you know the concert the the, the the not making connections or even you know seeing a, a, a sort of a conflict of interest between that fight for affordable water and the need to conserve water I frankly do find really worrying and it's something I've seen before um, I think there is a real um, problem with the environmental movement not making common cause when communities are fighting for these very bread and butter issues right I mean like this is, you know, when people are fighting against increases in public transit fares, for instance, that's often also not seen as being part of the climate movement. Why not? I mean, this is a great opportunity when people are making those connections, fighting fuel poverty um, and, and, and fighting against water charges and fighting for, public tra for, for affordable or free public transit. That's how you build a diverse climate movement that is tangibly making people's lives better in the here and now. And it's really important to do that because we're up against forces that are extremely motivated. They have a lot to lose if we win. Those fossil fuel reserves that need to stay in the ground, that represents trillions of euros worth of wealth, right? Um, so they're going to fight like mad to keep this system going. So we need a really, really motivated movement of people um, who have a lot to gain if we win because it will make their lives better. It will give them jobs that they need and affordable services, right? So these are the connections that we need to make. Um, thanks for that question. And... Um, you know, the question about plant-based diet, absolutely. You know, if we, if we don't consume meat, particularly beef, we lower our carbon emissions. That's one of the ways that we can do that. Um, and we can also do it by you know, biking and using transit and not flying. And you know how I got here, right? Um, but, you know, I will, I, and it's important. When we do this, you know, we show that actually we're happier, we're healthier. Um, but I, I do want to say that I don't believe you can legislate vegetarianism. Um, and I think that part of what, you know, you said, well, what would happen if everybody did this, right? But I think, I think 
part of the mistake we have made in the past around environmental issues is making it an individual consumer issue, right? Um, it's all about what you as a consumer eat, what, what, what you, you riding your bike and you making these individual lifestyle changes. We're stronger when we're together and we're not going to do this by changing our individual consumption habits. We're going to be doing it by changing policy, okay? So it's not that those individual things don't, have, don't matter. Yeah. I like, I, like, I like to quote my friend Bill, Bill McKibben, and I'll give him the last word, which he, when he says, when people ask him, what can I as an individual do? He says, the most important thing you as an individual can do is stop thinking of yourself as an individual. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Anya, for just keeping oh, us on all. target and being not amazing. And it was fun. Thank you. One last thing I want to say. Just very briefly before you all rush away. Um, her Twitter handle is, they say I'm polarizing. I think uh, on behalf of everyone here, we all found you magnetic tonight. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. No, really. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's fantastic. Maybe I shouldn't have done this here.